Right, so let me start with a short prayer and then we shall get going. Um, Father, thank you for bringing us together, God. Thank you for the, yeah, just the excitement of celebrating together last night, Father. Father, and I really pray that just that spirit of excitement and celebration we take with us, God. Just as, as your people that we love being together, God, we, we remember and we celebrate just the wonderful victories that we've had with you, God, and what you are doing. So I pray, God, for this day, please um, help me as I uh, bring the lesson. Yeah, guide what I say, and I pray, Father, that even as right now, Father, that you are preparing just the hearts of everybody here, God, just to, to hear your word, to allow to, you know, to convict us, Father. Um, this is a, a convicting and challenging book in the Bible that we are going through, and I pray that we will not dismiss it as something that happened um, two and a half thousand years ago, God, but that we'll learn the lessons for us individually and for us as a community. Oh, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Right, so um, last week, Lavuyu did a great job introducing the series, introducing the book of Malachi. I'm not going to repeat all of that, but just to remind you that um, the book was written to Israel, the remnant of Israel that had returned from exile in Babylon. Um, it was written... Um, by the prophet Malachi, and the word means, remember what the name means? My messenger. Okay, God's messenger. And he wrote this about a hundred years after Israel had resettled in, in Judah, and um, Israel wasn't doing well. Okay, they got discouraged early on. Uh, you know, the return to the promised land wasn't quite as exciting and as easy as they thought it might be. The temple was smaller than they thought. But they, they just defaulted back to their, their habit of, of disobeying God. So God using, you know, working through the prophet Malachi, um, encourages them to return, to return to Him. We'll read the passage just now in Malachi chapter 3. Now God says, in spite of, you know, your disobedience, I, I love you, I am faithful to you, and I invite you to return to me. Okay, you know, that's what the series is about. So God's invitation to his people has always been an invitation to return to him. When we go off track, any of you relate to that? You know, when we struggle spiritually, um, God is always there saying, return to me, and I will return to you, he says. Um, Malachi 3 verse 7 reads, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees, and have not kept them. And this is true of, of the history of Israel. You know, over and over again we see Israel for a short while typically are doing well spiritually, but then a time comes, a generation comes that, that doesn't obey God. You know, and do not um, follow his decrees, you know, his, his law. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Let me just mention that this concept of God inviting people to return to him and then him saying I will return to you is found elsewhere in the scriptures as well now Zechariah was also written after the remnant had returned to Judah I think it was written about 30 years afterwards so this is probably 60-70 years before the book of Malachi Uh, once the temple had been rebuilt Israel was starting to, um, to go astray you know, they were discouraged. 
Um, life wasn't easy back in the back in the promised land. It's it's a very dry, difficult land to to farm in. They come from Babylon, which which is actually part of a, uh, what they call the fertile belt. You got the Tigris, the Euphrates, beautiful, lush farming land. It was much easier for them in terms of you know just just how they could work the land and and, and make a living and get food, etc. So anyway, but no excuses. You know, God didn't make excuses for them. You know, he he corrects them and he invites them to return to me, he says. Return to me and I will return to you. But even before this, um, Jeremiah was written while the Israelites were in exile. So we're going back in history, yeah? Uh, Jeremiah wrote to the Israelites in Babylon and this is God speaking. He says, I have surely heard Ephraim, another word for that is Israel, I've, sure, I've surely heard my people moaning. And this is now his people speaking, Israel. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. Okay, this is from the perspective of God's people. Okay, struggling, not quite understanding what God is up to. And they are saying, please God, restore us, restore us, and we will return to you. Now, theme title comes from, our series title comes from, return to me and I'll return to you. But then they say, you know, Israel says, how are we to return? Now we can read that and think that Israel is saying, yeah, you know, we, we realize we're far away from you. Please explain to us how we can return. But the NLT, interesting, this is the NRV, explains it properly. This is not a humble cry for help. What they're actually saying is, how can we return when we, when we haven't even left you? That's the attitude they have. And the NLT, you'll see, actually explains that. Now, how can we return when we haven't even left? You hear the arrogance in that? You know? Like God's saying return, they're saying, we are ready, man. What do we need to return to? Again, that just gives us a sense of where God's people were at when this book was, was written. But this Hebrew word return is shuv. Say shuv. Shuv. Okay, it's a good Hebrew word to, to know. It's, it's translated in a number of ways. It can be translated as turn back, come back, repent. That's where, that's the word for repent. But it also means to refresh, Restore, revive. Okay, so it has all those different meanings, and we should read this. When God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Shuv to me, and I will shuv to you. But it's not the same type of shuv, you will agree, right? God doesn't have to repent and turn away from his sin. So God is saying, repent, and I will revive you. You repent and I will restore you. I will revive you. I will refresh you. Now, you know, one of the, the saddest things I have found is when Christians drift away. And it often happens very slowly, right? You know, there's the saying, I've said it many of, uh, often, what's, what's more dangerous, a watch that loses a minute a day or a watch that loses an hour a day? A minute a day, because you don't pick up on it, right? 
what could we say a second and a minute? But when change happens very slowly, you don't actually realize that you're losing time. And it's like that when we fall away. And this is what happens to God, to God's people over and over again. They didn't wake up one, you know, Sabbath or one day and thinking, man, I'm going to rebel against God. Cheers. I'm on my way. It took years and decades and generations of slowly drifting away from God. And these guys got to the point where they were arrogant. Why do we have to return to God? We haven't gone anywhere. And I think it's sad, as I was saying, when Christians slowly drift away from God without even realizing it. Now, when people say and they actually believe things like, I'm fine. I'm doing okay spiritually. I'm feeling blessed. I'm trusting God. Things are good. But you know, you know that these folks haven't even had quiet times for a long time. Don't attend meetings of the body often. Are not in any accountability relationship. No, are not are not praying, and just are not living as God calls us to live as God's people. And it happens over years. It happens slowly and subtly, and we don't realize it. And we can end up where, you know, the God's people ended up in the time that Malachi wrote this to them. So this is where Israel was back in the 5th century, 5th century BC. They thought they were fine with God. Um, There was no need to return, they said, because, man, we haven't gone anywhere. So not only were they deceived, but would you agree that's quite arrogant? You know, Lebuyu mentioned last week that the book of Malachi has six what we call disputes. Now, God basically points something out to the people, and the people say, what do you mean, God? You know, we're not like that. And then God patiently explains to them where they're at and what they need to do to change. And this is one of the, the disputes. Now they asked, how are we to return? We haven't gone anywhere. And then God patiently but firmly corrects them and says, you're living like this, it's wrong, right? But I'm inviting you to return to me. Turn back to me, repent, and I will restore you in the way that you should live. And I hope you're picking up that, man, there are lots of lessons for, for us in this, right? For any church, for any community. How we can drift from our, our purpose. And we convince ourselves, you know, that we're good. Right? Like they did. But deep down we know we're not, we're not right. You know, we, we, we are not walking and living as closely to God as we were in the past, maybe. Or at least how we know God calls us to live. Yeah, so last, Sunday, um, Lebuy, although he didn't have a, a title slide, um, he spoke about remembering God's love. And Malachi, you know, obviously God speaking through, writing through Malachi, explaining in this book what returning to him looks like. What they need to change in order to be refreshed by him. And the first thing he says and it's very significant because this is the first thing we must always remember. He says, remember my love for you. I am faithful. You haven't been faithful. You haven't shown your love for me, but I am faithful to my promises. Remember the promise to Jacob? Second verse, I think, is, I have loved Jacob. I have loved your ancestors. They, J- Jacob represented them as God's people. And he reminded them. And this is the first thing for us. If we are drifting, if we have drifted, or if we, we know we're drifting, right, we must remember God's faithful love. 
Remember God's love. Remember how God, what God has done for us. Count your blessings. That's the first thing to get our heart back in place, is to remember God's love. And whatever we do to be motivated by the love of God. We speak a lot about that as a church. Now the second change they needed to make, which I'm going to speak about today, they needed to give him their best. Give him their best. Undertake to give God your best. You know, when you are, are drifting, when we are drifting, you know, make a special effort to give God our best. Yes, I mean, the Springboks last night, they gave everything, didn't they? They left nothing behind. You know, they gave their absolute best. You know, for the team and for the country, and I love that as a picture of fired-up discipleship. We give our best, put our bodies on the line. We're all different, and I'm going to get there. It's not like we all can do this, you know, exactly the same thing physically, but giving our best is giving all that we've got. And we don't all have exactly the same amount to give. Amen. But we give, we give our best. Um, you know, but before we jump into the book of Malachi, I want to read Romans, Romans chapter 1. Sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And this is to establish an important principle for, for the rest of the lesson. There are a number of differences between, you know, God's people back in the day of Malachi and us nowadays. That was... 400 odd, 450 BC. What's, what's the biggest difference between them and us? It's a covenant difference. They were under the old covenant still, we are under the new covenant. So we need to pick up principles, new covenant principles that we can apply. And we need to read the Old Testament through new covenant lenses. Okay, so this passage, this verse, gives us important principles and context for us to read Malachi, which is all, the section we're going to read today is all about sacrifice and offerings. So what does that look like after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and if we're living in this new covenant with him? Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Okay, so just before this, Paul has written 11 chapters um, talking about God's love and grace. He's reminding, you know, the Christians just about God's story and how he has been faithful. Um, he starts way back in, in creation and talks them through, you know, the, the story of of the world and, and, and of Abraham's descendants, etc. So, 11 chapters, God is loving and he's merciful. God is amazing. And chapter 12, therefore. You know what that means, right? In other words, in, in the light of everything I have written, this is the response. In the light of God's incredible love and mercy, he says, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know, our, our response to God's love and mercy is to offer ourselves as living sacrifice. That is our spiritual act of worship. We don't have to offer animals, you know, bulls and lambs as they did under the old covenant in the days of Malachi. 
You know, Jesus took care of that. Jesus was the perfect high priest. He was the perfect sacrifice. We're learning about that in midweek, right? Hebrews. So Jesus has taken care of all of that. We no longer need to sacrifice animals as they did under the old covenant, but we are called to live sacrificial lives. We are called to die to our selfish, sinful natures and to offer ourselves as holy, as set apart and pleasing before God. You know, we sang this song earlier on, may my steps be worship, may my thoughts be praise. May my words bring honor to your name. That's such a great picture. That's such a, those words capture Romans 12, verse 1 perfectly. That's, that is how we please God. You know, that's the sacrifice that we make, right? Our steps, in other words, our lives, our life of worship, our thoughts are praising God, pleasing God. And our words bring honor to his name. That's equivalent for us. Not sacrificing animals, but we live like that. Okay, we choose to live like that. Obviously, helped by Jesus and helped by the Spirit and helped by one another. We undertake to live lives that are sacrificial. Lives of sacrifice. Now, I love the, you know, the singing in this church. Um, and we often refer to our singing as a time of worship, which it is. But worship is far more than singing. Okay, and I think we must stress that over and over again. We don't come to church to worship. We do, but it's a small part of our worshiping of God. We worship God between church services. We worship God in how we live our lives, our thoughts, the choices we make, how we speak. That's our act of worship before God. Okay, it is not events and sacraments and certain acts, you know, specified in a book. Alright, so it's important for us as we read Malachi just to remember that things are different under the new covenant. However, the principles are the same. When God says, give your best, he's not saying we must now go and look for a perfect animal. He says, give me the best of who you are. Give me the best of your time. Give me the best of your talents, etc. Let's read Malachi chapter 1. I'll read from verse 6 to 14, and then I'm just going to highlight a a few things from it. Malachi 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? There we go. That's another one of those disputes. They're questioning God. Okay, How how are we doing this, God? Verse 7. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. 
But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now a point that God is making here over and over again, and it's, it's throughout the book, is that he expects to be given honor and respect in keeping with his name. In other words, in keeping with his character. In keeping with who God is, right? He expects us to show him honor and respect. Now that's another point we're not going to talk about today, but we're going to talk about that in future. That's another way that, you know, God invites us, and it's another principle to return to him. Respect him, show him honor, even fear him with a good reverent fear. Okay, but we're going to get there. Um, I'm going to speak today about the, you know, the sacrifices. Give him, give him your best. And I, I just want to highlight how God experienced their attitude towards worship, including how they made sacrifices to him, and how that reflected the poor spiritual state that they were in. Okay. Guys still with me? Might be a temptation to run out the door now. I know. Amen. We've got to teach some tough lessons sometimes, right? And take them, right? This is not an easy, this is not an easy teaching. Once again, just you know, taking helicopter view, God was unhappy with his people for two main reasons. Firstly, their worship of him had become burdensome and heartless. They were weary of obeying God. They just got tired of living according to his commandments and ways. Their hearts just weren't in it. You know, they took God's blessings for granted. They were just going through the motions of killing animals and sacrificing them. Now their hearts just weren't in it. They got tired of doing things God's way. They got tired of doing things according to God's will. And I wonder if we as a community ever take God and his blessings for granted. You know, do we ever just go through the motions of doing church, pitching up for worship, hmm? giving a little bit? You know, how many of us have even got tired and wearisome of doing God's will? The point is that in the time of Malachi, the people there had a heart problem. It was a heart problem. They, they compromised, they became weary because they lost the heart to serve God. And we will become weary. We will start to compromise if our hearts are not in it. And if our hearts are not in it, we, we will end up treating God with contempt the way they did. Um, you know, in verse 13, I'll just read that again. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Yo. They sniffed at it. It literally means they turned their noses up at God. Turned their noses up. Now, what does it mean to turn your nose up to somebody? A snub? Yeah, snub. What do you, any other words? Prideful. Prideful. 
yeah, prideful, haughty. It's treating a thing or a person with scorn and contempt. Um, I have a kind of a picture of, of a pet. You know, if you put down food for a pet, some pets will sort of sniff it and they head up and they walk away. Not Dax, by the way. Dax doesn't do that. Dax appreciates his food, anything, right? But it's that kind of attitude. You know, like, I've been given something, but oh, it's not good enough for me. And I'll sniff and I'll turn and I'll walk away with an Cats tend to do that, I think. Cats are just haughty, full stop. Sorry for the cat lovers, yeah, but uh, amen. But, you know, so God says you, you're treating it, you're treating the worship, and he's saying you're treating me contemptuously. Okay, we can't separate the things of God from God himself. Now, when we become weary of doing God's work, we become weary of God. When we despise the things of God, we are despising God. Okay, that's why God is upset here. You're not treating me with honor. No, no, it's not you, God. It's just the way we do sacrifices. No, no, how you do worship is how you do me. Okay. How you treat, you know, the animal sacrifices and my law is how you treat me. When you turn your nose up at the altar, you're turning your nose up at me. You're treating me with contempt, says God. You know, church, let's make our, let's make our worship including the times we get together, although worship is a lot more than that. Let us make sure that our, our worship and when we get together never becomes wearisome and burdensome. Agree with that? Because the message we're giving to God is if we pitch up with a disconnected heart or we see it as a burden, we are treating God like that. I pray that God will never feel that we are tired and burdened by him. Amen. So God was unhappy because his people had become tired of serving him and had lost the heart to worship him. The second thing that God wants to teach them, I said there too, what he was unhappy with. God was also unhappy with them because they were keeping the best for themselves. Now we read in the passage that they offered defiled animals. In other words, animals that hadn't been purified properly. Um, They were presenting blind, lame and diseased animals. When they knew that God's commandment was to offer their best animals. They were giving animals to God they didn't want anyway. They didn't want to breed with these sort of genetically defect lambs. I'll just, let's just sacrifice those. I'll keep the best lambs for myself. They were giving animals to God that they didn't want anyway. And animals that they wouldn't even give to the Roman governor. You know, you can imagine if these, if the, if the guys went up the Roman governor and said, hey, I've got an awesome present for you and it's, it's a crippled lamb. How would the governor respond? He'd say, man, that's disrespectful. Not only to me, but to Caesar. You give your best to Rome. Probably would be arrested and tried for dissent or something. You know, so they're treating God, they're giving God stuff they wouldn't even give their Roman governor. Please, we're not like that, eh? Ever? Um, you know, when, when I was working, just a little aside, I've just thought of it now. I I had allegiance to my to my company. I was a loyal guy, you know, and I've stayed with one company all my life. I worked in different jobs, had different bosses. But, but I realized at times though that my loyalty to my boss mustn't be greater than my loyalty to God. So I would say no to meetings, I would say no to certain trips. I, I would say no to anything that happened on a Wednesday late because I had to get home for a family meeting, I told them. Here's a family meeting, right? 
The guy wondered why every Wednesday was a family meeting. Well, it was a church family. My family is important. And I just think sometimes that we can show more respect and fear for our bosses than we do for God. Why is it that we never stop our repayments on our house, our home bond, or our car, but we so easily stop giving God the tithe? Who do we fear more? Okay, Who do we respect more? Who do we honor more? So God was unhappy because they were keeping the best for themselves. You know, do we give God the best hours in our day? Do we give him the best years of our life? Do we give him the first cut of our salary? Do we give him the best strength of our bodies? Do we give him the best intellect of our minds? Do we give him our best talents and skills? Do we give God our best? I'm going to go back to verse 13. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lamed, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock flock and bows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Then God reminds them again, for I'm a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So, these guys were not only not giving to God their best, but they were also lying about it. They vowed to give their best, right? Probably publicly in front of the priests. But then when it actually came to giving, they gave an injured animal or a blemished animal. And God calls them cheats. Kind of interesting. Oh, they're lies, but he says, you're cheating. You know, I was thinking of this. Your students are writing exams. Um, And one of the things that prevented me from cheating, uh, well, I I hopefully knew what was right and what was wrong, but just getting caught out and getting labeled. It must be, I don't know how the varsity handles that, but there's so much temptation to cheat, I guess, nowadays. And I know the varsity does whatever they can to prevent it, but with, you know, online, whatever, um, tests and exams... Um, it's a horrible thing to be called a cheat, isn't it? Um, it's almost worse than being called a liar to me. But a cheat, it's like, man, you know, you're breaking the rules and you're doing it undercover, right? You want to get away with it. And you probably are vowing, you probably signed the form, I undertake not to cheat. So he's saying, you like, you cheats. You know, you have promised, you know, to give to me. You have, you have promised to worship me with reverence and awe. But it's just empty words. Now, when it, when it comes to actually doing it, you don't stick to your promises. And God's big on promises. That's what makes God faithful and us not faithful. God is faithful to his promises. God's love is about his faithfulness. And we're not God and we can't be perfectly like God in this age. But what made it even worse, and I think what, it, what, what makes it worse for us is if we pledge to do something. Yeah, I'll serve in that ministry. I'll do that. Yep, put my name down on the, you know, the serving list. But then we don't follow through with it. Now, there could be good reasons. Your life situation might change. Amen. Things happen. You know, sometimes we do things with good intentions. We really believe that we can serve in the worship team. And that we can be part of the team that goes out of Monica. Right? That we can serve in kids. Amen. They can be good intentions and stuff does happen. I'm not talking about that. 
But the problem with the people back in the time of Malachi was that it was a heart issue. And if our hearts are not in the right place, we need to get our hearts in the right place first before we pledge anything to God and his people. Otherwise, God will respond to us like he does here. You cheats. You know, you're saying you do something, but your hearts aren't in it. This is shooving, right? This is returning to God, what, what this looks like, you know, when we, when we drift away from God. You shoove by giving your best. We shoove by remembering God's love. Now we shoove by not lying to God. We shoove by just getting our hearts back in the right place. Now then, going back to verse 6, the second part of verse 6, he said, It is you priests who show contempt for my name. It's you priests. So God is rebu- rebuking the priests. They were the ones who were, who were responsible for you know, making the sacrifices. And um, they were also not teaching God's law to the people properly because they obviously thought that this is cool, you know, to sacrifice like this. I can bring in the animals. The priests weren't correcting them. And you may think, phew, thank goodness that doesn't apply to me, right? It's a church leader. Here's the problem. The priest. Okay. But he has the crunch, and you know this, right? The days of the, the Levitical priesthood have long gone. That happened with, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and getting resurrected. But all Christians, all Christians are priests under the new covenant. Remember, we've got to look at things through the new covenant lens. We read in First Peter 2 verse 9 that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession with a purpose to declare his praises. We're all priests, right? So let's read this as though Malachi speaking to us. Because this side of the cross and resurrection, he is. Amen. We've got to take responsibility. Every disciple of Jesus is called to a priestly role. Priests, remember, had three roles. Firstly, they, they upheld the word of God. They taught it and they upheld it. And to the best of their ability, none of them were perfect, but they lived out God's commandment. Okay? That's you. Okay, we called, each of us is called to uphold the word of God. Secondly, they mediated between man and God. We are ministers of reconciliation, right? We are all mediators. We bring people to God and we bring God to people. We stand in the gap between God and people. And then thirdly, the priests had to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. They were the ones who actually presented the sacrifices on on the altar. Okay, And for us, that is Romans 12. The sacrifice that we offer on the altar is the lives we lead. Holy, set apart, pleasing to God. We lay down our lives on the altar. Okay, so we are priests, right? So this is written to us. Let me get that out the way. Now, it's a great privilege to be God's priests. I mean, it's amazing. But it comes with responsibilities. It comes with great responsibility. And this section in Malachi focuses on the role of priests, specifically to offer sacrifices to God. And as I've said a couple of times, as priests we are to bring spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable to him. Romans 12. Now, what, what, what are those sacrifices? And I'm going to conclude here. I'm not going to have time to go through all of these. There are five here, but I really want to encourage you to write down these scriptures. Uh, this is the, the follow-up, right? This is a time of just you be with God. You 
spend time with God, pray through the lesson, and pray through these five points. There are others, but I think these five are just, I think, particularly important for us at the moment. So what do we sacrifice to God? Our bodies, Romans 12.1. Okay, we've covered that. Uh, our bodies are our, are our physicality. It's, it's our strength. It's, it's our abilities. Now, if you are ill and have health problems, that looks different to you than it is to me. I have energy. I don't know why, but I have energy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, right? Um, I can do as little sleep. I can push through the night. You don't have to be like that if that's not you. Amen. But because I'm like that, God expects me to waste myself physically. I can. Now, for his kingdom. And I'm not great, believe me. There are other areas where you guys can shame me. But, you know, we are called to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Deuteronomy 6. And all of our strength looks different for different people. But we are all called. We are all called to sacrifice ourselves. Our bodily selves. We created as physical human beings. What does that look like? If I suggest a few things come to mind. Just cooking meals for disciples who are sick. Fetching people, right? Um, helping a, a sister change the wheel of a car. Physically helping build a shack for people to fix things. Help waterproof a leaking roof. There are many ways. Think about that. What does it mean for you? And the second is our finances. Um, in Philippians 4, verse 14 to 18, this is where Paul's obviously writing to the Philippians, and he really appreci- appreciates their financial giving to support his ministry. He says, it was like a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. They gave him money to do God's work, and this is how Paul says God experienced it, right? This is an acceptable sacrifice to God when we give financially you know, to his kingdom. And then thirdly, our praise. Our praise is an offering to God. In Hebrews 13, 15, um, praise and musical worship should be a sacrifice of praise, you know, giving him the honor and respect that he is due. I'm pleased that Bruce got us going this morning, you know. He reminded us that, come on, you know, this is, this, he didn't exactly use these words, but it was, man, we're worshipping God. This is a, a form of, of sacrificing, of giving to God. And we need to make sure that we worship and praise him with our singing in a way that pleases him. And then our good works, next verse in, in Hebrews, um, it says that when we do good works, And when we share with others, God is pleased with such sacrifices. Okay, that's a pleasing sacrifice to God. When we do good works and we help our brothers and sisters. And then finally, I've just worded it like this. Winning souls for God. Romans 15 verse 16. um, Paul said, you know, he was given grace to preach to the Gentiles. Priestly duty, that's us, right? The priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an acceptable offering to God. The fruit of making disciples and bringing souls to Christ, that's an acceptable offering to God. Right? 
A priest mediates between people and God. You know, priests win souls for God. It's part of our sacrificial offering to God. Let me, let me conclude here. Um, God wants to be first in our lives. And I think it's a good time for us, you know, after this lesson, maybe during the week, it's just to reflect on, you know, are we giving God the best of our physical energy and strength? Are we giving God the first fruits of our income? Now, are we offering um, him the praise that he, that he deserves? Are our good works and our generosity a pleasing sacrifice to God? And now, does God experience our winning souls for him as an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice? God wants to be first in our lives. Now, if we give him our leftovers, it does not honor him. And when we became Christians and we confessed, you know, that Jesus is Lord. Now, is it clear now from how we sacrifice and what we sacrifice that Jesus is still the center of our lives? Now, is it clear from our life of sacrifice that Jesus is more important than anything else? You know, God judges the state of his people's hearts by the quality of their sacrifices. The state of our hearts are demonstrated more than anything by the extent that we live lives of sacrifice. Sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So what does the quality of your sacrifices say about the state of your heart? But there is good news and there is hope. If your heart and your life of worship doesn't line up with what God desires of you, then hold on to his promise. You know, God Almighty says, return to me and I will return to you. Shove to me and I will shove to you. God says, repent, turn back to my ways and I will refresh you. I will restore you. I will revive you. Amen.